0: Heads up, this episode of Better Off Dead contains references to suicide and self-harm. These include discussions about how some terminally ill people have tried to end their lives in the absence of voluntary assisted dying laws. We're aware of the Mindframe guidelines on appropriate language around the discussion of suicide and self-harm, and we have endeavoured to limit this detail. If you're likely to be distressed by this material, we recommend that you proceed with caution. Please have a self-care plan in place and let others know that you may be upset. If you or someone you know needs support, please contact one of the following 24-7 support services. Lifeline on 13 11 14, the Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467, Men's Line Australia on 1300 789 978 or Kids Helpline on 1800 551 800. If you're at risk of harm to yourself or others, contact Emergency Services immediately by dialing 000. Death is the last intimate thing we do.
1: So this morning the palliative care team have been around and doing their usual dance of desolam and morphine and he'll be unconscious I'm sure soon and then that'll be it then won't it
2: this is Kristen Cornell she's a doctor but when she recorded this she wasn't speaking about one of her patients she was speaking about her father
1: this isn't what he wanted you did not want it like this neither did mum that was the point <laughs>
2: Alan Cornell was 74 and in the last excruciating stages of motor neurone disease. He'd applied for voluntary assisted dying, been found eligible, but after almost 100 days, that life-ending medication still hadn't come.
1: And everyone will tell me that he didn't suffer, and I'll know that there could have been a better way.
2: When Victoria's VAD law was passed in 2017, it was touted by Premier Daniel Andrews as the most conservative in the world. True, its 68 safeguards made it a far more daunting law for terminally ill people to access than similar laws in other countries. Too daunting? In this episode, the unintended consequences of Victoria's law, a law so secure even some for whom it was designed struggle to use it. I'm Andrew Denton. You're listening to the final episode of Better Off Dead. A fear of a bad but death.
3: Sufferers. Let's not make
2: bad laws. And you'll go to sleep, the right. denying
0: the them die. another option. Oh. This leaves me no
2: choice. Me no choice. A perfect compromise yeah. of the eugenic impulse this is evaluation of lives. We just bias. don't talk about it. Against the invasion we played a game. I felt jaded. It was over. People want to an know. I know they can't control it. The police them. are obliged to charge
3: it's me to my with murder, manslaughter, denying them
0: another option. You will die very
3: peacefully.
0: Don't do this lightly.
2: Throughout Victoria's assisted dying debate, opponents in Parliament made much of the dangers of unintended consequences should such a law be passed. What if there are wrongful deaths, they asked? What if the doctor-patient relationship is damaged, palliative care diminished? Now, almost two years later, none of these concerns have turned out to be true. The small number of people who've used the law have all been clearly eligible. Palliative care has been unaffected, in fact Almost all the people who use VAD also benefited from its help, and doctors who've practised under the law report that, if anything, it has strengthened the relationship with their patients. But there have been unintended consequences, only they've turned out to be, not as opponents argued, of a law that would be too easy to access, but its opposite. Throughout this series, you've heard the voices of those who've been directly impacted by voluntary assisted dying in Victoria families of people who've died, doctors, pharmacists, and the terminally ill with life-ending medication in their keeping. In this episode, you're going to hear something you haven't heard before, a father and daughter as they actually go through the process of applying for that medication. A process which, as you'll hear, brought at first deep gratitude, then frustration, then fear, then anger. (music)
4: Uh, look, I'm just a different person mm. since the VAD decision.
1: When did, you, when did you start thinking about it? Oh. Uh, soon after you knew or, yeah. Oh, yeah. the VAD? Yeah.
4: Oh, shit, as soon as I, yeah, you know, and I was sort of like fuck, lucky as. It's fallen into Victoria. But I thought, yeah, you're in here Um, because you definitely qualify, you
3: know. hmm
2: there's a good Australian word that describes Alan Cornell.
1: Someone described him as the ultimate depiction of a country farm Alarican.
2: That's the youngest of his two daughters, Kristen speaking. It's funny sometimes what we remember about our parents.
1: My daddy used to smell like diesel and I thought that smelled nice. <laughs> <laughs> he was that kind of guy, you know, big rough hands, big big man.
2: Alan left school young, not even a secondary education.
1: He was a truckie. He was a blocky, as we call farmers up in Mildura. Um, he was a gardener. He was a taxi driver. He was, yeah, a very generous man. If I could make him laugh, I felt like I'd really made it in life.
2: <laughs> There's another great Australian expression: "Kicked up the backside by a rainbow." That's how Alan felt when he met a PE teacher called Pam.
1: She. Fell in love with Dad over a game of golf up on the Murray River and um, he always thought he was batting above his average.
2: (laughs) And he thought the sun shone out of both his girls, Heather, a secondary school teacher, and Kristen, obstetrician and gynaecologist.
1: He was very proud, but it wouldn't matter what you were doing really.
2: In March 2019, Alan's world began to come unstuck.
1: Mum said that they were walking down the GP clinic and she had this thud and he was flat on his face And I said, oh, mum, I knew that there was something going on.
2: It wasn't until November in a neurologist's rooms that what was going on got a name.
1: I'll never forget. He took off all dad's clothes and his muscles were twitching and he was this wasted man. And I looked at the neurologist and he just looked at me and he goes, well, your daughter knows what it is. And uh, he said, have I got permission to speak frankly? And dad said, please do, because I'm so sick of this. And he said, oh, well, you've got motor neurone disease, Alan, and um, this is going to significantly shorten your life.
2: Larick and Alan seemed to take it in his stride.
1: But Dad was just so grateful and relieved, he tells me. It was just one of the best days of his life because he finally had a reason to not be able to chop the firewood for Mum anymore.
2: But his doctor daughter could see things were moving fast.
1: I spoke to my other half at Christmas time. I'm like... (laughs) He's out in six months, don't you reckon? And he's like, yeah, I do, you know. Just every week would be step down, down, down.
2: The beast, they call it, motor neuron disease. No cure, just a curse that takes and takes.
1: For Dad, it was all his limbs that went first and there was no plateau, just this constant downward trend.
2: Four months after his diagnosis, Alan told Kristen he was thinking of applying for voluntary assisted dying.
1: I just thought, how am I going to let you do this to yourself?
2: A few weeks later, Alan confided to his daughter that the inevitable march of his disease had made him realise how few options he had. His body would shut down completely, including his ability to breathe. Kristen recorded their conversation.
4: It's as melancholy as I've been because now mm. I'm not capable. I have to ask for someone to help me and I can't mm. because there is no one who will. And, um, yeah, I'm talking about in illegal ways. Mm. I went through the dilemma of blowing my reins out, but I don't know a, shot, a shotgun or a rifle. Okay, the ute's still there. 120K into a very sturdy tree. It's very common. That's messy. Especially on the people who find you. It's oh, a very badly thought out plan. It's desperation at its worst. It's got to be soon. Otherwise she won't be physically capable of doing anything.
3: Mm.
1: You had thought about it. Oh,
4: yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I just didn't, didn't want that shit hanging on. And and it's a fucking... Not often I suck, but it's just, you end up in tears, you know, just sort of shouldn't be thinking this. And then you start thinking about the, the, your wife and your kids. And it's very fucking uncomfortable. Fucking horrible place to be.
2: He asked Kristen if she'd help him through the VAD process.
1: I said, of course I'll help you, of course.
2: With her doctor's eyes, she could see that time was of the essence.
1: I just felt like I was shaking everyone going, this is happening, this is happening quickly, help me, help me.
2: Alan asked his GP to assess him for VAD eligibility. As he spoke with Kristen, the good fortune he felt at living in the right state was palpable.
4: I oh, look. I'm just a different person Mm. since the VAD decision. It's just been so much better. Mm. And I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who go all the way with a horrible thing to a horrible end. Now, I don't have to do it. I can pick the day. I can talk to you. I can talk to Pam. I can talk to anyone I want if I need to. And so I'm now having... A whole lot better, period, pre-mortality now than I could ever possibly hope to live with this shit hanging on you because all these lovely people said we can solve that and they do it lovingly, you know.
2: It was March 2020 when Alan approached his GP who needed to do the training so he was qualified to assess him. By the time that was done and he'd found Alan eligible, it was early April. Almost immediately, things became difficult. Victoria's law states that two doctors must assess a person for eligibility, one of them a specialist in Alan's disease. Alan reached out to his motor neuron disease clinic to help find a specialist who might, but no one wanted to get involved.
1: They made a decision as a unit not to encourage or discuss voluntary assisted dying.
2: While within their rights not to participate, by law every individual has a right to conscientiously object, Kristen felt judged by her more cautious colleagues.
1: Which we found difficult because you're not trying to judge people for their ethical decisions, but when they directly affect your access something that is legal, it's a tricky pill to swallow.
2: The clinic directed them to the Regional Voluntary Assisted Dying Navigator, one of a small group of nurses and social workers who help guide people through the law's multiple steps.
1: She was amazing, accessible, informative, and she's like, great news, all the paperwork from the GP is through. Just got one little problem. There's no accredited neurologists in the entire Barwon region.
2: So an availability issue and a geographic one too. Alan lived 90 minutes drive from Melbourne.
1: Part of all of this is that telehealth is not allowed to be used when you're having these appointments and Dad was really struggling to be able to sit up in a car anymore.
2: But then a stroke of luck.
1: We ended up being saved inadvertently by a visiting neurologist that was able to help us with our accreditation.
2: He gave Alan a prognosis of 6 to 12 months to live, making him eligible for VAD. But by law this was still not enough.
1: The neurologist said, look, we need a second neurologist now to confirm that prognosis because with a neurological disorder, if you're given a prognosis of six to 12 months, you need a second neurologist to support that.
2: For Kristen, herself a specialist, this seemed like an excessive caution.
1: Neurologists train for years of in these diseases. We don't think they're able to make these decisions about prognosis that, you know, they're doing every day. I, I, It's beyond me why we would need two opinions.
2: Still, Kristen hoped it would be straightforward.
1: That neurologist doesn't actually need to be bad accredited, so all they need to do is go, oh, yeah, that sounds about right, Yep, 6 to 12 months.
2: But the neurologist they approached to confirm the prognosis declined.
1: I was absolutely stunned, obstructing someone from doing what they're trying to legally do.
2: This was the end of May. When Alan got the news on his 74th birthday... It was crushing.
1: I told him and he described them as effing bureaucrats and why do they get to decide this for me and, and I said, it's all right, we'll get there and he said, it's like I've got a carrot dangling in front of me and I can't reach it and he cried and I reckon that's about the second time I've ever seen him cry.
2: For Alan, the rabbit hole of VAD was about to get deeper. He did eventually find a neurologist who supported the prognosis, but the law says this second opinion must fall within seven days of the first and because of the delay...
1: We had to go back to the first neurologist physically, in person, again.
2: Nearly 10 weeks had passed since Alan first approached his GP. With her father's condition deteriorating... Kristen decided to start recording her thoughts.
1: So I've just arrived at Mum and Dad's take three of part one of seeing the neurologist for the formal request for VAD. Uh, The first time we went and saw this neurologist, it was probably about over four weeks ago, and Dad's really went downhill since then. His breathing's really struggling and he's certainly far less mobile. So it'd be interesting to see what kind of prognosis he gives him this time. Previously, it was six to twelve months, but we'd be lucky to to be uh, six to twelve weeks at this stage, or even days. But uh, look, the main thing is is that we're we're here and hopefully able to do it. A lot of hurdles, and in MND, time is everything. So yeah, really, really stressful to be in this position again.
2: The neurologist reconfirmed his original prognosis. This was early June. After two requests, both verbal, for assistance to die, Alan still needed to make a final written and witnessed request. Another challenge.
1: So today the doctors went around to mum and dad's house to organise the final signing of the paperwork and then he's going to make another final declaration of yes please I'm definitely sure about this and you need these witnesses which can't be a family and can't be the doctor and so you've then got to find two people who you're okay to tell about this is going to happen. We ended up asking some neighbours and thankfully even though it may not have been their preference of things that they would like to do that day they signed the paperwork
2: Nearly three months since Alan first asked about VAD, finally all the I's and T's of the law were dotted and crossed and he was found eligible. A date was set for the pharmacist to deliver the life-ending medication to which he was now legally entitled. But Kristen was beginning to doubt if he would live long enough to use it.
1: I called Heather yesterday and things were getting bad and I was talking about actually doing it on the day the pharmacist is there and I sort of thinking to myself is he gonna make it and then this morning he was in pain and then he was uncomfortable and he was grunting and he was desperately short of breath and his little muscles well there's no muscles they're just this rib cage trying to breathe and skin on it and twitching muscles and and I think he would have He would have done it this morning if it was there, but it's not there. It's not there because of all the logistics and mucking around and face-to-face crap. And I'm cross about that because this isn't what he wanted. He didn't want it like this. Neither did Mum. That was the point.
2: As Alan descended into greater and greater pain, the palliative care team did their best to help.
1: So this morning, the palliative care team have been around and doing their usual dance of Dazolam and morphine. And he'll be unconscious, I'm sure, soon. And then that'll be it then, won't it? And everyone will tell me that he didn't suffer. And I'll know that there could have been a better way
2: Although a doctor, Kristen told me she'd been unaware of the historical opposition to assisted dying within palliative care.
1: I had no idea. Like, you either choose palliative care or you choose FAD, and it's so completely wrong. I mean, without palliative care, we would have been completely stuck. Palliative care was a huge part of Dad's end of life. We are so grateful. They were wonderful. But it's a spectrum. We literally palliated him for 36, 48 hours waiting for the VAD medicine to come through the door. And I don't know how long it would have gone on for, but to say that without palliative care that you shouldn't need VAD, it's just not true. But dad didn't want to lie there breathless for 48 hours before his end. He was like, I've been able to extend my life with my family, living in a way that I never expected and being okay with all of that. But now, here's my point where I'm not okay with this anymore.
2: June 16th, the day before the pharmacist came, was the worst of all.
1: He was terrible. He was dying. He was suffering. He was begging me the entire day prior to to finish it. Where are they, Kristen? Where are they? Where are they? He was exhausted. He's like, I don't want this anymore. We didn't think he'd survive that night.
2: By the next morning, Kristen was emotionally drained.
1: I didn't think he'd make it through the night, but... We gave him more infusions and more doses and he slept and looked like he might just keep going on but he was just skeleton and looked so uncomfortable and he kept asking me where the tablets were. And that was hard for me. I know that I hadn't failed him but I felt angry for him and annoyed for him.
2: Finally, the pharmacists arrived.
1: And they were so amazing. They walked in and Dad's incredibly breathless. He can barely speak. And he's struggling because I'd withheld a lot of medication because we didn't want him to be so drowsy.
2: Throughout the entire process, Alan had had to demonstrate that this was his rational wish. Once again, the pharmacist asked him.
1: He, he said, so you're Alan Cornell and I I need to go through a few things with you. And one of them is that you understand what's going to happen to you if you um, choose to take this liquid and um, so then they said to, to Dad, whose pet peeve was the phrase, pass away. He hated it. He's like, I'm dying, Kristen. am not passing anywhere. I'm dying. And um, so they said to him, oh, so, Alan, you know, um, we, we just want you to understand what will happen to you if you take this medication. And Dad started, well, I'm probably going to fall off the twig. And, and he said, so I'm, oh, okay, so from what you're saying, I think you're saying you, you're aware that you're going to pass away if you take this medication. So my sister and I just erupted in laughter, which is incredibly inappropriate at a time like this, and, um, and they kind of look at us and I'm like, oh, look, I'm sorry, he just hates that phrase. And Dad said, mate, you know, I am, and then the guy realised that Dad was waiting for him to say something, and he's gone. Like, dying and he's gone if I drink this I will be and the guy's gone dead (laughs) and then he's gone well Alan considering you've managed to turn this around into a quiz for me I can only assume that you know exactly what's happening.
2: How long was it between when your father got the medication and uh, he decided to use it?
1: About (laughs) 30 seconds (laughs) so do you want to know what he said? because it tastes pretty bad. <laughs> uh-huh. And we had some beer and other things and ice poles to sort of wash it down with. But when he took it, he took a couple of sips and he put it down and goes, oh, this shit will kill you.
2: A larrikin to the end, an end that had been so hard-earned.
1: We just hugged and my sister, was a bit agitated because he was so unwell. So it was a different death to, I think, a lot of people's deaths it could have been if he hadn't been so unwell. So it was, it was hard, but it was a relief. It was a relief. And um, I think he felt very looked after and he knew he was at home and he knew we were with him and he was at peace. The struggles were gone.
2: It took almost 100 days for Kristen's dying father to get the life-ending medication he so desperately sought, each one filled with anxiety and suffering. For Kristen, this was inexplicable.
1: All the worry that people have, that people are just going to jump on this option, unless we get 50 people to double-check that you're a sound mind and body, that we're all going to be wanting to do voluntary assisted dying or something. Like, are they out of their mind? Like... I'm a doctor, and if someone tells me that they want a hysterectomy, I don't think that they're mucking around like, and that they haven't thought about it. You know, these are very rare circumstances we're talking about to safeguard against, to, to make it so hard for everyone else. People aren't going to just be doing it for fun. This is the end of their lives we're talking about. I I don't get it. I don't get it.
2: Cornell's story is not an isolated one. Reg Jeb's wife of more than 30 years, Helen, also had an aggressive form of motor neuron disease. As her condition worsened, Helen was crystal clear about what she wanted. They were insisting that she go to hospital because there was a
3: lot of pain at this point in time. And basically she'd be at a nappy, they'd dose her up and yeah, then she'd wait to die, um, which isn't exactly what she didn't want. The fact that voluntary assisted dying existed gave her a feeling that she had some say in her own destiny. It was a great relief that whether you used it or not, this
2: option was available. Helen had been found eligible for VAD by her GP and a neurologist specialising in motor neuron disease. But, like Alan, the nature of Helen's disease meant a second neurologist had to confirm the prognosis of between 6 and 12 months to live. Even though she and Reg lived central to Melbourne's major hospitals, their challenge proved no easier than it had for Alan. Their GP reached out for help. She
3: wrote numerous letters and made numerous phone calls to it seemed like 30 neurologists. But nobody would do it. And Helen's doctor said, I think this is going to be a race between us getting the approval
2: for the V A D and you dying. Did uh, I hear you correctly? You said that the GP uh, had approached something like 30 neurologists? It's
3: a lot, isn't it? A lot of them didn't even answer. And Helen was starting to give up hope.
2: Helen's GP kept trying.
3: So she persevered. And two months this took. Eventually, a professor at the Royal Melbourne Hospital agreed to do it.
2: A dying woman, desperately reaching out for the most basic form of help, confirmation of disease and likely time until death, yet for two months, Melbourne's medical establishment largely turned its back. The delay meant that Helen, like Alan, must endure another trip to be re-examined by the neurologist who'd already assessed her as eligible.
3: The first step in the process would have been, say, in April, I think, and so it went from there to
2: October. Wow, so we're talking six months? Yeah, pretty well. That's a long time for somebody with a significantly deteriorating condition. Yes, and
3: the proof of that is what happened in the end, which was... So for the VAD, there were three syringes with stuff in them. The first one is a relatively light sedative, that puts you into a light sleep. The second one knocks you out cold and the third one is the one that ends the life. So the doctor administered the first needle, Helen went quiet
2: and she was already gone. So it was simply the administration of that first light anaesthetic? Yes, she was that far gone. In its 2020 report on the first 18 months of Victoria's Law, The Voluntary Assisted Dying Review Board revealed almost a third of the people who had been issued permits for life-ending medication had either not used it or died before they could.
1: We've never had a complaint about it being too quick. Only ever had complaints about it
2: taking too long. This is former Supreme Court Justice Betty King, chair of the board, whose job is to review each case and ensure the law is operating as intended. I asked her what complaints they'd received from families. A number relate to
1: having to have a second doctor who is a specialist in the area of the patient's um, illness. The other is about those who have to seek the third independent person for the
2: neurodegenerative if the prognosis is under 12 months. Telehealth, not being able to use that is a constant complaint. Betty acknowledges the law isn't easy to access. It takes determination to take all of these steps. She also points out that it was never intended as an emergency procedure. It's not an easy process, but neither it should be. This is the
1: ending of a life.
2: At this stage, it's worth remembering the political environment in which Victoria's VAD law was passed back in 2017. Almost 50 attempts in other states over the previous 20 years had failed. Opposition from the church, elements of the media, and many in the medical profession was intense, and I saw firsthand the pressure that was brought to bear on politicians who chose to support it. Several in the Liberal Party were threatened with their careers. Labour MPs had their cars plastered with ugly pamphlets at their state conference. One Labour minister was personally attacked from the pulpit while attending her local church while one Liberal MP, under intense pressure from her own party not to vote for the bill, was rushed to hospital during the debate with a panic attack, though returned later that night to make sure to vote her support. It was politics at its most brutal and emotional. Faced with this political reality, the government tabled legislation with more safeguards built into it than anywhere else in the world, 68 of them, and in the end, the law did pass by just four votes. Its passing was revolutionary, changing the conversation about end-of-life care in Australia and paving the way for other states to do the same. But Victoria's necessarily cautious approach came at a human cost, as you've heard in the stories of Alan Cornell and Helen Jebb. It's there, too, in the numbers of people who were found to be legally eligible but who didn't live to use the medication. Throughout this series, I've asked doctors I've spoken with about what unintended consequences of the law they've experienced. Four main ones kept coming up. One, requirement for assessment by a specialist. One thing I would
0: change is that the
3: consulting doctor should not have to have done the voluntary assisted dying training.
2: Two, the inability to use telehealth to consult with patients.
3: You're asking people who are quite unwell to travel long distances to access that care because... It can't be done over telephone or video link.
2: Three, the prohibition on doctors raising the subject of VAD. You
3: can talk about palliative care, but you're not allowed to tell them about VAD. So for the ordinary man on the street, how do they find out about it?
2: And four, residency requirements. Despite the fact that he was a taxpayer, he was on the
4: electoral roll, he had all his utility bills to show that he was a Victorian resident. He wasn't an Australian citizen, so he was ineligible.
2: If you'd like to hear the longer conversation with those doctors and Betty King, go to the episode webpage. One of the tasks of the Review Board is to make recommendations about the functioning of the law when it comes up for review five years after its commencement. Here again is Betty King. What we're doing is noting what's coming in and trying to work out
1: what are the common factors that cause people the most trouble in terms
2: of accessing this so that when we do make the
1: recommendations, they're informed.
2: Perhaps one of the things that will help inform those recommendations are the VAD laws since passed in Western Australia and Tasmania, similar but differing from Victoria's in crucial elements. For instance, while both require assessing doctors to have considerable professional experience, neither insist, as Victoria has, that the second assessment be done by a specialist the unintended consequence of which was the traumatising delays faced by people like Alan and Helen. And, unlike Victoria, it will be legal in these states for doctors to raise VAD as long as they discuss other treatment options in the same conversation. Of course, the great risk of improving Victoria's law was that it would trigger the usual cries of slippery slope from the familiar sources. A bit like fake news, The phrase, slippery slope, is a ready-made, one-size-fits-all attack on ideas or values you oppose. We've seen it used many times down the years. For example, by Big Tobacco against bans on cigarette advertising in the 1970s, and more recently, by Christian lobby groups and politicians against same-sex marriage. Remember how people were going to end up marrying Bridges? If, for religious or other reasons, you are fundamentally opposed to assisted dying, then everything to do with it, even one death, is a slippery slope. But if you are at the other end of the argument, seeking law reform, then change is not a slippery slope. It's more like a merciless mountain of seemingly endless parliamentary inquiries and debates to be scaled, each one requiring volumes of solid evidence to support even the slightest advance. And even then, as history has shown, change may come imperfectly, or it may not come at all. It is now late May 2021. Since I began working on this series almost a year ago, Tasmania and New Zealand have legalised assisted dying. So too has Spain. New Mexico became the 11th US state to do the same and after their constitutional court overturned a ban on assisted dying, Germany's government is now planning to legislate. Two weeks from now, on its 17th attempt it is likely that South Australia's Parliament will follow suit with both the Premier and Opposition Leader voicing their support. And in September, for the first time, Queensland's Parliament will debate legislation drafted by the Queensland Law Reform Commission and put forward by the government. Upon its release, the Chair of the Commission, Supreme Court Justice Peter Applegarth, said that the law they were putting forward was not constrained by similar laws in other states, but was instead the best legal framework for a voluntary assisted dying scheme in Queensland. Not only will Queensland follow Tasmania and Western Australia's lead when it comes to assessment by specialists and doctors being able to initiate a conversation about VAD, they are also proposing that a person can be eligible if they are expected to die within 12 months. In all other states, the law says six months unless you have a neurodegenerative disease in which case it can be 12. Their argument that firstly, it's hard to justify having different time limits to access VAD depending on the nature of your illness, and second, a longer eligibility period allows a person who is dying to start the application process earlier. This can reduce the likelihood they may die before using or even receiving the medication, as have almost a third of those found eligible in Victoria. Preemptively addressing the cries of slippery slope that will come from the church and others in opposition, Justice Applegarth wrote In a federation like ours is the notion that the states are laboratories of democracy in which different policies can be enacted and tested in a state. If the policy is a failure, it does not affect any other state. If, however, the policy is a success, it might be expanded to another state. If improvements are made in the next state, they might be adopted in another. Whether Queensland's Parliament passes this law remains to be seen. If it does, it will only be after many months of consultation built on years of peer-reviewed research and nearly a quarter of a century of examples of similar laws working effectively overseas. And whatever assisted dying law it may pass, as with others that now exist around Australia, its fundamentals will be the same. It will be conservative... It will contain many proven safeguards. It will not be easy to access. It will be voluntary for all involved. It will be more heavily scrutinised than any other area of medical practice. It will only be for those whose suffering as they die is such that they would rather drink that lethal draught and step into the unknown than be forced to endure hell. And it will only be for the courageous few. As Oregon doctor Peter Regan put it when asked about the vanishingly small numbers of people who use their law, I cannot imagine why they would expect an avalanche anywhere. It just turns out that people don't want to die. My thanks to everyone who has contributed to this series, in particular those families who have been through the VAD process, and to Ron Poole, Peter Jones and Fiona McClure, who each had the life-ending medication in their possession. The bravery, intimacy and honesty of all these conversations will remain with me always. Legalising voluntary assisted dying is not easy. And as the first year of Victoria's Law has shown, Passing a law does not mean the work is over. That some pursuing their legal right to VAD are still being harassed or blocked is wrong. Equally, there is much to be done to promote the idea of genuine patient-centred care across the medical community. If these things concern you, because, as Jim Morrison said, no one here gets out alive, then you may like to support the work of Go Gentle. You can find us at gogentleaustralia.org.au. You may also like to seek out and support the work of your state's Dying With Dignity organisation. While this is the end of Better Off Dead, look out for a sneaky bonus episode, a replay of Radio National's Big Ideas programme recorded at Melbourne's Wheeler Centre. It features former VAD conscientious objector, oncologist Dr Philip Parente, chair of the Assisted Dying Review Board, Justice Betty King, terminally ill shepherd and man, Ron Poole, and myself in discussion, expertly moderated by Paul Barclay. It's a fascinating conversation, made all the more poignant by the knowledge that Ron had chosen to spend some of the very little time he had left to help us to understand what the choice being offered by Victoria's Law had meant to him.
0: Season two of Better Off Dead is created, written and presented by Andrew Denton with Beth Atkinson-Quinton, Martin Peralta, Kiki Paul, Steve Offner and production assistance from Alex Gow. It is a co-production of Go Gentle Australia and the Wheeler Centre. Follow wheelercentre.com forward slash Dead to learn more about the people and ideas from each episode.